Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Amen. If you'll remain standing, turn your Bibles to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. The last three Easter's, or the last three Resurrection Sunday's, We've been in 1 Corinthians 15 looking at the evidence of the the resurrection, the importance of the resurrection, and the implications of Christ's resurrection, more of a theological view of the resurrection. But this morning I want to go back to the gospel narratives. And of all the, the four gospel writers, none gives us such deeply interesting evidence of the resurrection as John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. So if you haven't already, turn to John chapter 20, as this morning we look at the first part of John's account of the resurrection. I wish we had time to do the entire account, but we don't. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10 in John chapter 20, if you'll follow along as I read our text. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. May the Lord bless this reading of his word. You may be seated. After six hours on the cross, at three o'clock Friday afternoon, Jesus, knowing that his great work of redemption was completed, cried out with a loud voice, it is finished. Then he breathed his last, bowed his head, dismissed his spirit, and died, as many of his distraught followers looked on. Mark tells us that many of the women that followed him from Galilee were looking on from a distance. And these women were at the cross when, with the exception of the Apostle John, all of his disciples had fled. John 19.38 tells us after Jesus died, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. And the women watched as Jesus battered, 
bloody, lifeless body was removed from the cross and taken away by Joseph of Arimathea. But Joseph was not alone. John tells us in verse 39, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And then Joseph and Nicodemus took the body of Jesus, John 19, 40 and 41. They took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So John tells us the tomb was in a nearby garden, and he makes special note of the fact that this was a new tomb, one in which no one had ever been buried. And Matthew tells us it was actually Joseph of Arimathea's own tomb. And then in John 19.42, we read, So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. After Joseph and Nicodemus wrapped the body of Jesus in the linen cloths covered in spices, they laid his body in the tomb. Matthew tells us they rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away while Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, Mary the the mother of Joses, were there sitting opposite the tomb watching it all. And so at the end of John chapter 19, Jesus is dead and buried in a borrowed tomb. But John's gospel doesn't end with chapter 19, thank the Lord, (laughs) because the story of Christ doesn't end with the grave. He was buried in the tomb, but three days later, death could no longer hold him. He burst forth from the grave, and the risen, glorified Lord, as the risen, glorified Lord and Redeemer. He had earlier told Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And on that first Easter Sunday morning, he certainly proved it. But the discouraged, despairing followers of Jesus, overcome with sorrow and grief, were totally unaware of what had taken place at the garden tomb early that Sunday morning. But they were about to find out, as we'll see now in John chapter 20. Each of the gospel writers have their own unique contribution to the overall picture of what took place when Jesus was crucified. And the same is true of the resurrection. Each of the gospel writers have their own unique contribution to the overall picture. John writes his gospel account of Jesus' life some 30-plus years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written. And so John expects his readers will be familiar with those accounts and details uh, that they give. And so John leaves out things recorded in the other gospels. John does not tell us about the other women who had been followers of Jesus going to the tomb. He only focuses on one of the women, Mary Magdalene. John also does not mention the earthquake when an angel of the Lord came from heaven and rolled back the stone from the tomb entrance and sat on it. He does not include the appearance of two angels to the women who visited the tomb that morning before Peter and John arrived, nor the reaction of the women. In his account of the resurrection, John focuses on four individuals, Mary Magdalene, Peter and John, and then finally Thomas, and how they came to know and to believe that Jesus had in fact risen from the dead. At the end of his account in the last two verses of John chapter 20, the apostle makes his theme clear. He tells us that he has written these things so that his readers may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing have life in his name.
John's account of the resurrection was written for the same reason he wrote his entire gospel, as a summons to believe in Christ and be saved. And there is no doubt in my mind that that God is summoning some here this morning, calling you this morning to come to Christ. Well, let's look now at verses 1 and 2. As John tells us of Mary Magdalene discovering the empty tomb, we read in verse 1, Now on the first day of the week, and we're going to stop there for just a moment. On the first day of the week, all four gospel writers begin their account of the resurrection by identifying the day as the first day of the week, rather than the third day after Jesus was crucified, which would have connected the resurrection with Jesus' prediction that he would be crucified and then rise on the third day. And so no doubt there is some significance to this. And it is likely they did so to associate the resurrection with the new beginning. The Jews didn't have names for days of the week as we do. They numbered their days from the Sabbath, which was the seventh day, because it commemorated the seventh day when God rested from creation. And the Jews worshipped on the Sabbath day. Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week, the first day after Sabbath, which is our Sunday. The resurrection of our Lord on Sunday, the first day of the week, was so significant that the early church met on that day from the very beginning to commemorate his resurrection. And this day eventually became known as the Lord's Day, as it still is. The Sabbath is no longer the legitimate day for the people of God to worship. From that first Resurrection Sunday on, no Sabbath has been required of believers in Jesus Christ. Paul, writing in Colossians 2, 16 and 17, said, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Paul explicitly refers to the Sabbath as a shadow, a shadow of Christ, which is no longer binding because the substance, Christ himself, has come. As one commentator wrote, in Christ, the full requirements of the moral law had been met. The shadows of the ceremonial law had all been fulfilled. The old system connected with man in the flesh was ended. A new and spiritual dispensation had begun. So we celebrate Christ's resurrection once a year, but in reality, every Sunday when the church gathers, we are commemorating that Christ rose on the first day of the week. That's why why we're here on this Sunday and every Sunday. Look back at verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So John begins his account with Mary Magdalene. We don't know when or or where it happened, but we're told by Mark and Luke that Jesus had cast out seven demons from Mary. Mary knew what it was to be demon-possessed. She knew what it was to be tormented by the power of Satan, but Jesus had performed a miracle in her life that no one else could. Christ delivered her and and set her free from Satan's bondage. The light of the world had driven the darkness of seven demons from her soul. 
And of all of our followers, our Lord's followers on earth, no one probably loved Jesus more than Mary Magdalene. Because no one felt they owed so much to him. And Mary never got over what Jesus did for her. I mean, her heart overflowed with love and gratitude for him, and and she served him from then on. During his earthly ministry, she was among the women from Galilee who had followed Jesus, ministering to him, went up to Jerusalem with him, and provided for him and the disciples out of their own means. Mary was devoted to the Lord and sought every opportunity to serve him. I mean, having received so much, she loved much. And loving much, she did much, thus proving the reality of her love. And that's why Mary was at the crucifixion and remained there through it all. That is why Mary followed Joseph and Nicodemus to the garden and sat opposite the tomb as they prepared Jesus' body for burial. And she was there when they left. And that's why Mary was the first one at the tomb early Sunday morning. Mary loved Christ so much. I mean, her only desire was to serve him, and if she could no longer serve him in life, she was bound and determined to serve him even in his death. And so sometime early on the first day of the week, that is on Sunday, while it was still dark, John tells us Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. Now keep in mind, to visit a grave in the early morning hours of daybreak would try most women under any circumstances, and probably a lot of men as well. But to visit a grave while it's still dark, especially the grave of someone who had been put to death as a felon, I mean, to go there to show honor to the man their nation had despised and the Romans had executed, that speaks of great love and devotion. And that's exactly what Mary Magdalene, along with the other women, did. In the early morning darkness, they began to make their way to the tomb where Jesus was buried, bringing spices they had prepared to anoint his lifeless body and and just to be near him one last time. And the fact that they came to anoint Jesus' corpse on the third day after his burial shows that they, just like the disciples, were not expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. But despite their lack of faith and his promise to rise again the third day, they came to the tomb out of a deep love and affection for their Lord. Their love compelled them. And on the way to the tomb, Mark tells us that they were fretting over how they were going to get into the tomb because of the large stone. But their concern about the stone was short-lived because Matthew 28 tells us there was a great earthquake as an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and rolled the stone away. And of course, as you know, it was not so Jesus could get out because a resurrected Christ doesn't need the stone to be removed. It was removed so witnesses to the resurrection could get in to verify the tomb was empty. And apparently the earthquake only affected the immediate area around the tomb because it does not appear the women felt it as they were going to the tomb. Matthew also tells us the soldiers who had been posted at the tomb trembled and became like dead men. They they passed out from fear of the angel. And when they came to, obviously panicked by the earthquake and the angel, they fled the scene in terror to report what had happened. 
And we don't know the exact timing of it, but obviously it occurred before Mary arrived. And the women may have been coming from different locations, or perhaps they started out together and, and either got separated, or Mary simply walked much faster and went on ahead. Whatever the case may have been, Mary Magdalene was first to arrive at the tomb, and apparently the other women arrived shortly thereafter. But when Mary arrived, she saw the stone had been removed from the tomb, and and she didn't take time to investigate any further. I mean, apparently she didn't actually look into the tomb at this time. Rather, she feared the worst, immediately concluding that Jesus' body must have been stolen. And her first thought was to go and tell Peter and John of this ultimate indignity. And she was right, of course. She was right in assuming the body of Jesus was gone. But she was wrong to conclude someone had taken his body from the tomb. And she may have been thinking in terms of grave robbers. She may have been thinking of of the Romans or perhaps the Jewish religious leaders or, or even the gardener. It doesn't matter. She was wrong. When Mary saw the stone rolled away, surely, I mean, think of it, surely if there was even the slightest bit of belief in her mind that Jesus was going to rise from the dead, wouldn't she have said, oh, it's empty, or the stone's removed? Is it possible? Is it possible? Has he risen? But she didn't. That thought never entered her mind. And so Mary left the other women at the tomb. And from the other gospel accounts, we know the other women actually went into the tomb. And Luke tells us they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus, but they did see a young man in white. And we know from the other gospels, he was an angel. In fact, Luke tells us there was a second angel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us one of the angels announced the resurrection to the women, saying, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where they laid him. The angel then reminded them of what Jesus had said and and sent them to tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus was risen. And they immediately obeyed the angel's command. Mark tells us they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So apparently some went in one direction, some in another, to go and tell the disciples, apparently speaking to absolutely no one along the way. And as these women are going to tell the disciples, Mary Magdalene, who left before them, look at verse 2, ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. The one whom Jesus loved. Once again, John refers to himself as the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. You see, though John was an old man when he wrote this decades after it occurred, he was still absolutely overwhelmed by the fact that Jesus loved him. And he could think of nothing greater than to be one whom Jesus loved. Well, obviously, Mary knew where to find Peter and John because apparently they were staying at the same place. 
Peter and John were the two disciples that stuck the closest to Jesus after his arrest, and, and they seemed to be the closest to one another. Of all the disciples, only John had witnessed Peter's fall, his sad denial of the Lord in the high priest's courtyard, and, and then his bitter weeping afterward. Wouldn't it seem reasonable then to think that from Friday night to Sunday morning, John was lovingly ministering to Peter, binding up the broken heart of his brother and telling him what, what took place at the cross and of Jesus' last words. And John's tender love and compassion for Peter is, is seen even after his denial of Jesus. I mean, how many Christians today would have condemned Peter and made very sure that he felt all the weight of his guilt and shame? But when Peter fell, he found in John a friend who loved at all times and a brother born for adversity who did not look down on him or despise him. John loved Peter, cared for him, and, and had him under his own roof, wherever that was. And something else we should remember. Wherever John was, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was. And I think it is highly probable that Mary Magdalene thought she should be the, the one, uh, one of the first to be told about the stone being rolled away. And when Mary arrived where they were staying, we read in the rest of verse 2, she said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. And Mary's use of the plural we, we do not know, indicates she was not alone at the tomb. She says to Peter and John, they've, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. They've, they've taken his body. And Mary didn't know who had taken the body of Jesus or why they did it, whoever they are. And, and what she did not assume was that Jesus had risen from the dead. And again, that didn't cross her mind. And it obviously did not cross the minds of Peter and John, who up to this point apparently had no thought of even going to the tomb. I mean, think about that. Here's Peter and John who lived with Jesus, and Mary, who was a part of the group of women who traveled with Jesus and the disciples. They knew him. They'd seen all the miracles. They'd seen Jesus raise the dead. They'd seen him feed the multitudes. They'd seen all of his mighty miracles. And we also know Jesus repeatedly said that he was going to rise from the dead. In fact, he said it so often, even his enemies knew, which is why they had guards placed at the tomb. And Jesus must have said it many, many, many times to his disciples, so they heard it over and over and over and over again. In fact, he didn't just say he was going to rise from the dead. He said he was going to rise on the third day. And so how in the world is it possible that you live with Jesus and see all the, the mighty miracles and are told repeatedly, I'm going to die and be raised from the dead on the third day, but on the morning of the third day, they're not even there. I mean, wouldn't you go to the tomb just out of curiosity? But none of Jesus' followers ever really understood when he said that he would rise from the dead. Even though they heard it over and over again from Jesus himself, it, it never really clicked. They never really understood. It just went right over their head.
And we can only imagine the emotional turmoil Mary was experiencing when she found Peter and John, you know, no doubt beyond upset. And she must have been thinking, what, what more can they do to Jesus? They've brutalized him, they've crucified him, and now they've taken his body. And in verses 3 to 10, John turns his focus now to Peter and himself and their response to Mary's report. Verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple. And in keeping with his genuine humility, John once again did not refer to himself directly, but only as the other disciple. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. So when these two men heard the news from Mary, no doubt they would have asked her, well, how do you know the body is gone? And Mary would have told him, because I saw the stone, it's been rolled away. And they immediately went out and were going to the tomb to see for themselves. We read in verse 4, both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. At first in verse 3, they're pictured as walking. They went out together. Then in verse 4, they're running together. And then John wants us to know that he was faster than Peter. It's like, come on, John. I mean, since he's the author of this gospel, he, he puts it in that he outran Peter and reached the tomb first. <laughs> and actually, as we'll see, he puts it in twice. <laughs> I mean, John was humble enough not to mention his own name, but he was just competitive enough to tell us that he outran Peter to the tomb. <laughs> and it's believed that John was much younger than Peter because John lived some 60 years after this event. And so his youth may have been the reason he outran the older Peter. I mean, who knows? But you wonder what was going through their minds as they ran toward the tomb. Because Mary's words must have completely overwhelmed them. I mean, they probably didn't know what to think. And John arrived at the tomb first, but he hesitated to go in. Look at verse 5. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. When John arrived at the tomb, he would have immediately noticed that the stone was rolled away, indicating Mary's story was true. But John, and this just fits with his personality, he, he stopped short of going inside. Instead, he stooped down and, and looked in, and, and when he did, he saw the linen cloths or the linen strips lying there. And we're not told exactly where the linen cloths were lying, uh, but the implication is that the cloths were lying exactly where the body had laid. I mean, he may have out, outran Peter, but whatever uh, kept John from going into the tomb didn't stop Peter at all. Look at verse 6. Then Peter came, Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there. Well, when Peter arrived, no doubt out of breath and true to his impetuous nature, he just blew right by John, went right into the tomb. John wanted to stop and, and think about it. But not Peter. No, keeping with his personality, he just went right in. And we're told he also saw the linen cloths lying there. Notice verse 7. 
and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. And so Peter sees the linen cloth, but he also saw the face cloth, which was folded up separately, uh, neatly placed by itself. Now, it's important for us to understand the burial practices of the Jews. I mean, they were very distinctive. In Roman and Greek cultures, corpses were often cremated. As you know, the Egyptians embalmed their dead. The Jewish people practiced neither of these. Jewish burial customs dictated that the body be washed, anointed with oil, and bound up with linen cloths with spices. When Jesus was buried... When Jesus was buried, the spices used were myrrh and aloes. Myrrh was a resinous material and and aloe was a powder. And the two were, were mixed and then the linen cloths or strips covered with this mixture were wrapped around the body limb by limb. But the face, neck, and upper part of the shoulders were left bare. And typically corpses were wrapped with their arms folded cross like across their torso. And then a special linen cloth or napkin was placed over the face of the deceased. One commentator suggested that this face cloth did not simply cover the face, but was also wrapped under the chin and tied on top to prevent the mouth of the corpse from falling open. But whatever the case may be. The point is the grave clothes, the linen strips of cloth containing the spices, did not cover his face. And then once this process was completed, more spices were then packed around and under the body once it was placed in the tomb to help cover the smell of decaying flesh. Now this mixture of myrrh and aloes would would dry and and harden the linen cloth so that the body was actually encased. And it was sort of like being in a cocoon. And apparently what Peter and John saw were linen cloths still in the shape of Jesus' body, though probably somewhat collapsed, so that it was obvious the body was not there. The impression that is left by this description is that the body had simply passed through the grave clothes, spices and all. And the face cloth that had covered Jesus' head had been neatly folded by the one who no longer had any use for it. New Testament scholar Michael Green said, They saw the grave clothes still wound around but empty, as if the body had passed right through, looking like a chrysalis after the butterfly had left. And indeed, the butterfly had left. This neat, orderly arrangement of the linen cloth showed that a human hand did not, at least not in any way that was apparent, remove the linen cloth which wrapped around and encased the body of our Lord. And all of this demonstrates that something absolutely unique had happened in that now empty tomb. And the point of saying the linen cloths and and the face cloth were there uh, is perhaps to show how this resurrection was different from the resurrection of Lazarus. And you'll remember from John chapter 11 that Jesus raised Lazarus after he had been dead four days. And John chapter 11 says, The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with the cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. 
People had to unbind Lazarus. That's why it's disappointing to me that the writers of the ESV study Bible would say that most likely Jesus unwrapped these claws from his body when he awakened from death and left them behind. I don't believe that to be the case at all. Other people had to unbind Lazarus. They had to remove the linen strips and face covering and free him. That's because he had a mortal body. He would die again. But after his resurrection, Jesus did not have a mortal body, but rather a glorified body. He would never die again. As Paul said in Romans 9, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. And Jesus' glorified body is different. In his glorified body, he's able to pass through walls. And we're told as such uh, in John chapter 20, verse 19 and verse 26, down in verse 26, A part of the verse says, although the doors were locked, where the disciples were assembled, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. He just passed right through everything, just appeared right there in the room. And at the very moment he entered the room, like no ordinary body can, he said to doubting Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus had a physical body that you could recognize and touch. I mean, Luke tells us after the resurrection, uh, he was able to eat fish, or he ate fish. And so it appeared to be physical. It was one that could be touched. He, He ate like a normal person, but it was a glorified body. And so unlike Lazarus, who had to be freed from his grave clothes by others after his resurrection, Jesus' glorified resurrection body simply passed through the linen cloth as it would soon pass through a wall to enter a locked room where the disciples were gathered. And the linen strips that bound him and the face cloth were simply left behind when he rose from the dead. If you look back at verse 6, we're told that Peter saw the linen cloths lying there. Lying there. The Greek word translated lying there means laid or Set. In other words, they were, they were lying there in order, lying there undisturbed, and the face cloth folded by itself, making it obvious that there had been no disturbance at the tomb. John is, is drawing attention to the fact that the burial cloths in the tomb were left neat and orderly. He is describing an orderly scene, not one of disorder and confusion and clutter. You see, there's no way for the linen cloths to be in order if someone had ripped them apart. Not only that, the face cloth was not on top of of the others. You know, it wasn't just lying around. Rather, it was folded up neatly in a place by itself. And this means that all three non-supernatural explanations for the empty tomb are eliminated. I mean, the tomb was empty, and there are only three non-supernatural possibilities. Number one, the first non-natural or non-supernatural possibility is that Jesus wasn't really dead, that he revived in the coolness of the tomb and, and got up. It's called the swoon theory. But if Jesus got up, the cloths would not be lying there undisturbed. Things wouldn't be folded. They would have been uh, taken off and piled in a heap someplace in the tomb. 
The second non-supernatural possibility is that grave robbers or enemies stole the body. Well, if someone stole the body, why in the world would you remove the linen cloths it was wrapped in and hold on to a naked, mutilated, oozing, slimy, stinking dead body? Because that we're, that's what we're talking about. I mean, who would take all the linen cloths off? Well, the answer is nobody would do that. And if you did, the cloths would have been torn off and unraveled in a hurry so you could get out of there as quickly as possible. Thus, the cloths would have been strewn all over the place and not left undisturbed with the face cloth neatly folded. And the third non-supernatural possibility is that his disciples and friends stole the body. Well, again, why would you unroll all the cloths and carry off the naked, mutilated body? I mean, more than that, who could have gotten it out like that? I mean, the answer is no one. The evidence shouted loudly that Jesus' body had not been stolen. The linen cloths were there. The body was removed without them. The linen cloths were orderly. They, they were not removed in any normal way by the person wrapped in them, and they were not removed by grave robbers or vandals. Something absolutely unique had happened in that now empty tomb. And since Peter was inside, we read in verse 8, the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, so John just wants to remind us again that he outran Peter, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. John also went into the tomb. And, and what did he see? Well, he saw exactly what Peter had seen just a moment before. Entering the tomb and, and looking more closely, John saw everything. In addition to the linen cloths, he now saw the face cloth that was neatly folded and placed by itself. And it's important that we take note of the fact that in verses 5, 6, and 8, the Apostle John uses three different Greek words meaning to see. First, when John arrived at the tomb, we're told he stooped and looked in and saw the linen cloths lying there. The word saw in verse 5 is the common Greek word that means simply seeing. It just means seeing. Nothing more than that, just seeing. In verse 6, when Peter arrived, he entered the tomb and saw the linen wrappings. The Greek word translated saw in verse 6 is a different word. It speaks of, uh, it speaks of looking carefully or, or examining something closely. We get our word theater from this word. Audiences at a theater watch carefully so as not to miss any part of the play. So John is telling us that Peter took a long careful look. And then thirdly, in verse 8, when John went into the tomb, we're told that he saw. The word saw he uses in verse 8 means to see with understanding. To see with understanding. John is telling us that he went into the tomb and he saw, meaning he saw with understanding. And, and what was the result of his seeing with understanding? It's the last word there in verse 8. Believed. 
He believed. This verse is John's personal eyewitness testimony. He's saying, I went in, I saw, and I believed. And the fact that two men, Peter and John, both saw it makes their evidence admissible in a Jewish court of law. But John says, I too went in, I saw, and I believed. But what does it mean that John believed? Well, it cannot mean that John now became a true believer for the first time. That's ridiculous. John and the other disciples were already believers. Nor does it mean that John now believed Mary's report that the body of Jesus was not there. That is also ridiculous because it states the obvious. As one commentator wrote, the tense of the word believed implies not that John came to faith, having been previously an unbeliever, but that he became convinced or persuaded of something on the basis of what he had just seen. And what had he had just seen? What, he, what had he just seen? The stone removed from the entrance of the tomb, the linen cloth still in the shape of the body, though probably flattened out by the weight of the spices, lying undisturbed, and the face cloth neatly folded into place by itself. No one had moved the body or disturbed the linen cloths. They were lying exactly as Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea left them on Friday evening, but the body was gone. It had not been stolen. It had not been moved. Clearly, it must have passed through the cloths, leaving them as Peter and John saw them. Jesus must be risen. The empty tomb, the undisturbed linen cloths, the, the face cloth, these were enough for John. He saw them, and he believed the truth of the resurrection. He was the first of the disciples and of all of our Lord's followers to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead, and he did so not seeing the risen Lord. Most of the early witnesses came to believe the resurrection after they saw Jesus alive from the dead, but not John. He came to believe before. He saw the resurrected Christ. He believed Jesus had risen just by the sheer force of the evidence. He believed in the resurrection because there was no other explanation. And he tells us now in verse 9, For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And John believed Jesus had risen, but as yet he and Peter and the others didn't understand the Old Testament scriptures pertaining to Christ's resurrection. That was going to come later. And John tells us this because he wants us to understand that he's not making up this story as a result of reading in the Old Testament that Jesus was to rise again. John is saying we really didn't understand the Old Testament. When Jesus had spoke of the resurrection, we didn't get it. That's what he's saying. And this is a very humble confession on the part of the Apostle John. John is giving testimony here to the astonishing, I mean, the, the breathtaking fact that Jesus of Nazareth, who died, was, was buried and somehow, some way, risen from the dead, conquering death, hell, and the grave. This is the conclusion John drew from the evidence he saw with his very own eyes. John says, I believed Jesus 
had risen from the dead, even though at this point he didn't understand the Old Testament scriptures pertaining to the resurrection. But you have to wonder if in John's mind some of the words of Jesus were now beginning to come back to him. Words like, he would be handed over to be crucified and on the third day rise again. Or, I have power to lay down my life and I have power to take it up again. Or, the words of Jesus in John 10 to Martha, the sister of Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. I mean, perhaps some of those very words were, were now beginning to swirl around in John's mind. I mean, who knows? And I don't know about you, but uh, it's comforting to me that the Apostle John could read the Old Testament and not get it, that he could hear the words of Jesus but not understand that, that he was going to rise again. I mean, we can actually be encouraged by this. And we can be encouraged that the Lord doesn't cast us off when our faith is weak and our understanding is shallow. Rather, he graciously leads us to deeper faith and, and understanding as we seek him. I mean, think of it. Mary didn't expect the resurrection, but she loved the Lord and, and wanted to give him a proper burial. Peter and John's faith and understanding were weak at this point, but the Lord graciously nurtured them along and, and later used them mightily. You see, we, we serve a very gracious and loving Savior who knows our frame, who understands and sympathizes with all our weaknesses. After entering the tomb and, and seeing the undisturbed burial cloths, look now at verse 10, we read there, then the disciples went back to their homes. Sort of anticlimactic, isn't it? I mean, both Peter and John left and went back to their homes the Greek words translated to their homes literally means they went back to themselves. It no doubt refers to the place they were staying in Jerusalem. And John makes no comment about their state of mind at this point, but Luke mentions in his account that Peter went home marveling at what had happened. And you have to think that Peter and John spoke about nothing else as they returned to where they were staying. But really, there, there was no reason for them to remain at the tomb. They had seen with their own eyes proof positive that Mary Magdalene's report was true. The, the tomb was empty. Their Lord's body was gone. There was nothing they could do by hanging around there. And they may also have left out of fear of the Jews. They probably expected that Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin were going to be extremely angry when they learned the tomb was empty and, and the body of Jesus was gone and that they would turn all of that anger on the disciples. And so the sooner they got home, the better. And then we also have to remember that wherever John was staying, Mary, the mother of Jesus, would have been there in obedience to Jesus' last command to John. And so I think it's reasonable to suppose that one reason they didn't linger at the tomb is they wanted to tell Mary Jesus was risen from the dead. And so they went back to their homes, Peter marveling at what had happened and what he had seen. 
John, convinced and persuaded by what he had seen, that Jesus had in fact risen from the dead. He couldn't prove it yet, because he had not seen the risen Lord, but he believed it. He believed it. So the stage is now set for the appearances of the resurrected Lord, which would erase all doubt that the resurrection had occurred. The first of those appearances was to Mary Magdalene, and John records it in verses 11 to 18 of this chapter, and I wish we had time to go through it. And then John doesn't tell us, but we know that the first apostle that Jesus appeared to was Peter. We're not told when this took place. We have no record of what Jesus said. We only know that it was sometime after he appeared to Mary Magdalene and before he appeared to the two on the road to Emmaus. And John then tells uh, of Jesus' appearance to all the disciples except Thomas on the evening of that first Sunday morning. And then eight days later, he appeared to all the disciples, including Thomas. And down in verses 27 to 29, this is what we read. He said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. But for now in our text, Peter and John left the tomb and headed back to where they were staying in Jerusalem. This passage describes for us one of the great turning points of all time. Jesus is crucified, buried in a borrowed tomb, only to rise again the third day, just as he said. And this event was was the turning point for Mary Magdalene, Peter, and John, and the other disciples and followers of Jesus. The resurrection changed everything. Everything. And you can leave here this morning thinking, okay, well, wow. Uh, Resurrection changed everything. Wow. Wow. You can leave here that way this morning. Or you can leave here this morning worshiping God and rejoicing in the glorious truth that Christ was crucified but is now risen and that he has conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave. And it is by his death, burial, and resurrection that Christ saves us from our sins and the penalty of our sins, which is death, not only physical death, but eternal separation from God in a place of eternal torment. And that is something to rejoice in. And Jesus Christ is the risen Lord, and before him one day every single knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this is the Christ with whom we have a personal relationship. This is the Christ in whose presence we are to be filled with awe and wonder. And this is the Christ with whom we will spend eternity. But my question to you this morning is, do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, was buried, and rose again? I mean, do you believe that you've sinned against a holy God? That you have violated his law and that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ? 
You see, the only hope for your sins to be forgiven, the only hope for my sins to be forgiven, the only hope for eternal life in heaven is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is a summation of the gospel. It's the basis of the gospel and the foundation upon which our salvation rests. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, so there's hope beyond the grave. And I pray, and many here are praying this morning, that you will make certain today that uh, if you die, that you will die in hope by placing your trust in the risen Christ alone for salvation, in Christ alone. That's our prayer. But if this morning you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, that you will make certain this very day that you put your faith and trust in him alone for salvation. Don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in your good works. You can't be good enough. You can't do enough good works to make yourself acceptable to God. Scripture tells us all of our good works are as filthy rags before Him. Your only hope for salvation, the forgiveness of sin, and eternal life is to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Grow.